a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. There are very few young stars in this business, but Alana Sapwell may indeed be Australia's brightest. Two of my all-time favourite meals over the last couple of years have both been at Arc Dining, where Alana taken the reins and made her mark with her beautiful food. She had a career that started in Queensland, but took her all over the world and then back to Australia. We talk about travelling and working in Japan and even burning your food waste out the back of a restaurant in Northern Territories. Who would have thought? Ever wonder what the future holds for restaurants and hospitality after such turbulent times? Well, let's find out from someone who's very much part of this ever-changing food scene in Australia. Lana Sapwell, welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I thought you didn't want to be on at the beginning. I sent you, because I don't have your number, and I texted Matt and said, can you say, have you got Lana Sapwell's number? And he goes, yeah. And I go, send it to me. He's useless. (laughs) Because <laughs> like a week later, I still got no number. I go, oi, still a week later, no number. So then I just messaged you and I thought, oh, she doesn't want to do it. So I'm really pleased that you jumped on. It's good. Yeah, how good's Instagram? You can just, you know, <laughs> Send anyone. random messages, yeah, and see what happens. So anyway, I thought I'd, I did a little bit of research because I, I thought I'd point out in the intro, I said that um, eating at um, your restaurant, Arc, uh, probably, would it be a couple of years ago now, maybe two years ago, I think we ate twice, was seriously the standout meals of that couple of years. I just, yeah, I don't know, just fresh and a different way of looking at food and and really loved it. Yeah, I think at the time, like, you know, working for Josh was amazing and I really enjoyed Sydney. But I think the end game was always to come up and do something in Brisbane or, you know, in my home state. And... Like at the time when I left Queensland, you know, there was a few high-end fine dining kind of restaurants, but also they were really heavy. You know, it was that kind of really indulgence, not just going out and dressing up, but like really indulgent kind of eating where it was kind of fat on top of fat or, you know, a lot of sugar. And you just, you know, you left feeling like that was amazing, but also I can only do that once a year where like when I was thinking about ARC and the kind of food that I wanted to be producing, like it it really, it was feel-good food, not just the places that I wanted to be supporting where, you know, really supporting those ethical kind of farmers, but, you know, the way that the customer feels by leaving there is that they, even if they may not know it, but they've got really nutrient-dense food in them. And I think that really came back from even going to, to Blue Hill. And I think I had about... 30 courses, but it was all so fresh and by the end of it, I just felt good. So when you say Blue Hill, you mean just for listeners because they're like, where's that? Yeah, so before before I started ARC, I had like a bit of a bucket list because I knew I would be stuck in the kitchen for, you know, quite a long time and might not get those opportunities. So I took the opportunity to go over to America where Dan Barber, which is, you know, he really promotes exactly the same things that, you know, I that align with my ethos where it's, you know, saving seeds, looking after those farmers. um, And, you know, he works directly. He's got this amazing garden and even the farmers around that area, he works really closely with them and gives, you know, he has the, 
the confidence to, you know, put a, a radish on the on the plate and be like, this is the best radish and you'll never actually even get this species. And it's really putting the effort from like the soil onwards as well. And you don't need to really overcomplicate the dishes if the produce itself is that amazing. And I think even working with Josh, the process of how we handled the fish, you know, that gave us enough confidence to put a piece of fish with a piece of lemon on the plate and be like, you know, that's a dish. And because, you know, you're getting the fish in, you're cutting all the scales off, it's never tapped in water. When we are ageing it, you know, that's just intensifying the flavour, the true flavour of that fish. And so you don't just think about fish as this, like, white, fleshy, moist, like you actually get an indication of what a John Dory should taste like. And then it's much easier to actually pair it with, you know, a vegetable and it's not like every fish goes with an asparagus salad. Like you get a true indication of what the flavour of that specific fish is or, you know, that you can use that concept with everything, like, you know, vegetables alike. Yeah, you've touched on a lot of um, kind of concepts there for people that are foodies and gone, okay, hang on a minute, slow down, because um, it's not easy, is it, when you're in a, on a big city restaurant, you know, in Brisbane's big city restaurant, uh, big city restaurant town, right? to be connected in that way to food. I mean, Dan Barber's on a big farm access to, like on his doorstep, he's got, you know, you can go out and do a bit of garden. And I think he's spent a long time as well building those relationships. Like it doesn't happen overnight. And I think it really helped, you know, coming from Queensland and over the last, you know, 10 years, um, even though I've been overseas, like I have slowly built on some of those relationships. But even having like a clear vision of what I wanted to do coming back to Queensland, like I found it really difficult, even when it came to vegetables, coming in and I aligned myself, I won't name any names, um, but I aligned with myself with someone really close to the restaurant that also, you know, was doing amazing things for the soil and had those that same ethos. But logistically working that into a, a big business, something like that was at Howard Smith Wharves, which just kind of, you know, churns. You know, I had to take four hours out of my week to personally drive to this farm because they didn't want a middleman, which is completely fine and you have to respect that. But then, you know, there'd be a small product list and I knew there was a lot more growing there. So then it was like this constant conversation that you would have and then you would, you know, build up another a big enough product list or like order that it would be worth the petrol money going and grabbing this produce and then half of it wouldn't be there. And it was just like, you know, it's it's really difficult working with these smaller farmers because there is things that just happen as well. You know, they can be hit with heat or they can have a crazy rain and then, you know, half of it's not available. And I think that's why we actually started a garden at Arc as well, just to have, you know, a little bit pressure off us Um and so we could support them and have a bit of a backup plan there as well. But, you know, and that's where, again, just knowing a few people in the area and and looking at it and saying, I don't know if this relationship's really working. Like, I really respect what they're doing, but it's just, it's really, you know, running a seven-day restaurant at the time and it was lunch and dinner. It's just like, I just, I, I don't have four hours to even go and drive to, to pick it up ourselves. Where And also also suppliers have been over the years and, I, you know, I've been in the business a long time now and people have just been burnt, you know, like a, a chef would say, you know, let's not name any names, but they'll say, can you grow me these 
uh, tomatoes or they've smuggled in seeds for something. I mean, because a lot of produce that we take for granted that are just in the market now got smuggled in, you know, whether it was your Greek grandmother or, you know, a restaurateur that had them in their pocket. Sounds terrible. Hope nobody's listening, but that's the truth. Um, but they get burned because, you know, circumstances change with the restaurant and they just don't take the order. And even like chefs, you know, changing their mind, having it, you know, it might seem like a cool thing to do at the time and then they have it on their menu for a week and maybe the customers don't like it, the dish that they've done or they just get over it and then they just, you know, and they, the farmer's done all that work to get it to that stage and then at the... Nobody to take it. Well, and that's like you hear those stories all the time and I was actually talking to a farm called Loop Growers and what, um, like, and if I'm going to do another restaurant, I would definitely think about this as like uh, before, you know, I set up cost in, you know, you as a restaurant buy a plot of land and say this is, you know, what I want to grow here. They do all that work for you because, you know, they're really great at that. Us as chefs, I'd love to do that, but, you know, we've got our hands pretty full as well. But also you're sharing the, the load of, you know, if the risk with them. So, if you know, if they do get hit with hail or heat or whatnot, you share that risk with them. And I think that's really something that we should be thinking about supporting our farmers and moving forward. Well, during lockdown, I just laughed at myself because, you know, I've never really, my wife's a bit of a gardener and she grows all sorts of things, but I don't, you know, occasional things. I, I grow things that I can guarantee, like garlic, easy. I can grow garlic, right? Found the right spot. I, I get about 60 to 80 bulbs of garlic, keeps me going. Um, but we planted a whole veg patch and I went crazy. And it was just an eternal battle with everything from the elements, not enough sunlight, the slugs, the birds, the whatever. I just went, it's too hard. It's too hard, you know. And that's the truth, right? Absolutely. And that's why I think we need to leave it to the professionals and think that, you know, they've worked on that. Even I went up and did this um, this speech, so to speak, um, at this Young Farmers Connect at Falls Farm. And, you know, I had the chat about, you know, how hard it is from a restaurant's point of view at the moment and from a chef's point of view and how we can all kind of, you know, fill in the gaps and make it easier for one another. And then they had someone that was talking about soil. Um, so, you know, whilst Falls Farm isn't certified organic, like their soil is just amazing and just, you know, to get that piece of paper is just so costly and they'd rather make it really affordable. Like they believe that good food like that should be for everyone. So, you know, I don't think they make much money, but they produce really beautiful food and they're doing the right thing and they know that. But just the amount of different things that can happen to the soil is just, and what you have to, like, it's that's a job in itself. And then they had a seed person as well. So again, wanting to, all the people there were like really organic farmers or they're using those same practices. And as part of even getting seeds in to Australia, like I knew how bad it was in America because of, you know, Dan Barber shouting at the rooftops of <laughs> and calling people out. But to get seeds in here, there's a process that get, the government does where, you know, they spray it with something that's been proven to be cancerous as well. And then you can, to get rid of that, then you hire the same people to then, you know, clean it up but it's just like there's nothing truly organic about that whole process and again like like you said you know the only way that we're going to save our seeds or get some new varieties in is by smuggling it in which is not not legal by any means yeah absolutely yeah well there's, there's industries to protect that have been established for a long time and actually the seed business is big business and i don't know if you've ever but i'm sure you have but there's i mean there's some big seed uh, farms you know uh, going out in the western districts in victoria 
Um, and they're owned by big overseas companies. And I never realized until years ago when I went, had a look at them, they said, yeah, I mean, we grow seasonally and this company has farms in Brazil and in Denmark and in what have you. And then they're just, all those seeds are exported all over the world. So it becomes a, a seasonless exercise for buyers, if that makes sense. I never realized that, you know, you just operate in your own little world and went, has a lot of money in this. Well, even, business. yeah, huge amounts. But, like, I didn't realise how much COVID affected even, like, the seed company where they grow for, th- like, in one year they grew enough seeds for three years. But, of course, everyone was stuck at home and they're like, let's grow something at home. And so they just cleared the stocks. And even at Falls Farm they were saying, we can't get citrus trees for another six years and then the time to grow. Like, there's just so many curveballs and it's really interesting to kind of use this time to step out of your four walls of the restaurant and realise, you know, the, the bigger picture and how it all comes together and, you know. So sorry to drag you, you know, just because we're on that thought process, but drag you into what you think you might do next. But so do you look at people like, um, I don't know, Darren Robertson, who's got the farm, for example, and go, well, that's kind of how I might see the next restaurant in attached to a farm or? I think it's really lovely to, you know, for people to see that connection then and there because I think it gets really lost even like when I was at ARC. You don't want to push information on people, you know, if they're interested and you have to, and that's what we, I spent a lot of time with the front of house going, you know, you really need to read the person, put the dish down, say it in three words. If they're interested in something, they'll ask and then here's all the information and that's how you can kind of tell them this is what we're supporting or this comes from this farm. But a lot of it, like, I don't even know if people feel like they've been lied to as well. So there's that mistrust and so people kind of click off. Like, you know, you go into Woolworths and the other day a friend said that she went in there and over the loudspeaker there was, there's 30% um, food waste and, you know, we're working really closely with the farmers to reduce that where, like, I think we all know that, you know, it, to reduce it maybe they're just saying don't put that unperfect fruit in here so we're not wasting it where there's still going to be a huge amount of landfill or they just that's what I've been thinking about at the moment of like that's in the big picture I would love to become like the Maggie beer of secondary produce and that's a way that you can really support those farmers again by because like I said you know they've got their hands full the the big supermarkets don't want to take it. Like, I think Maggie Beer's put a huge amount of time into creating that, like, ugly veg kind of station. But, again, that's wrapped up in plastic. It's stuck into a corner. And from a customer's perspective, like, you know, you kind of train to look at plastic now and think that's bad and I don't want to be supporting that. So it's not really given a fair go where, you know, farmers need to be having their own little commercial kitchen on the property or somewhere to really be turning that into something of use and some kind of monetary feedback to them. So that's something that I'd really like to explore in the future. It's certainly a slowly, slowly approach with people, isn't it? Because even though, you know, we love food and we're surrounded by it all the time, I'm often surprised that people have very simple tastes and actually they don't, a lot of people don't know a lot about food. Like, I mean, I had a friend who I... Uh, gave a recipe for and she said are they fresh beans that I use and I said yeah they're fresh beans she goes I've never used fresh beans and I was like but I think everyone's so busy as well like I think it's unfair like this is our life you know this is what we're interested in and that's why you know we 
we naturally research and naturally know all these things because that's that's our focus in life. Like, I think it's really unfair to think that, you know, a lawyer with their priority is to get their client out of jail or whatever, whatever it may be, like, you know, for them to have the time and maybe they've got kids and, you know, there's just so much going on at the moment. Um, and I think that's why COVID in a roundabout way was really nice as well, that people did sit down and you could see that refocus of, you know, I do want to be supporting this this farmer more so and, like, how do I do that? And, like, I just, I think it would be really interesting to see, you know, if people, now that they're slipping back into normal life, like, if they do you know, use those good habits that they've created and continue yeah, that. and actually carry the thought and feeling that all those seeds that they bought or the seedlings, they probably didn't grow. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? So how much success was out there? You know, it'd be interesting to see, wouldn't it? <laughs> I was looking at a dish on, and it's I just plucked it out of a number of dishes that you had on uh, Instagram, and I, I was winding back a little bit. But um, you had, it says Amazing Cylindrica, I think it is, beetroots from Falls Farm, salt-baked, and sat over uh, the pit today to create uh, the best of both worlds and then roll up and chew uh, the juicy centres. And it's, I mean, people can go and have a look at Alana Satwell's Instagram. You might find it. But it's just that there's a beautiful simplicity about that dish. Can you tell me, I don't know, the thought process around even just plating that up? Um, I don't even, I think that actually, most of my dishes happen by accident. I think I say that all the time. Um, But... We we did, like, you know, the beetroots themselves were so beautiful and I think, you know, other salt baking, like, that brings out the true flavour of things where, you know, you're just kind of steaming that vegetable in some kind of salt crust so then you're seasoning it internally but, you know, it's just that true flavour. You're not watering it down with oils or butters, all those yummy things. Um, you just get a really intense true flavour of what that vegetable is and then from there, like, let's be honest, anything over fire tastes delicious as well. So we just sat it above the fire pit that we were cooking (laughs) on day to day. And, you know, so it got that natural smokiness, but it also just slowly dehydrated it. So again, intensifying it, but then gave it that, yeah, that leathery kind of outside. So you did get that juicy inside, but, you know, the almost roll up chew on the outside as well. I just think, you know, you can have something as simple as a really tasty, nutritious beetroot, and then just bring out what's really beautiful about it and give it a few layers, give it a few mm. textures, add a little bit of smoky salt. Like, you don't need to do much. And then I think that one, we use some cranberry hibiscus from the garden, which is just like a sorrel, like it's really citrusy leaf, and then made some agrodolce. So it's just like sweet, sour, smoky, a bit of acid, like everything you want, where it was pretty much just a plate of beetroots. See, and I commend you for that because I look at it and I just go, it's beautiful, I wouldn't change a thing. But I bet you if you gave me the same ingredients... I'd end up adding something else. I just, I don't know, I just, you know, and wrongly so. So that's why I asked you that question because it is a beautiful-looking dish. And even, you know, that hibis- the hibiscus leaf that you've used there is just gorgeous. So that, that kind of simplicity, was there a penny drop moment where you went, oh, that makes sense, that's how I'm going to do it from now on? I actually think I cook a lot like I did at the start of my career. So at Noosa, I got an apprenticeship with um, a guy called David Rayner and... Just a bit of a backstory on that. Like I, my grandma actually, I was living in Gympie at the time and she used to save newspaper articles of like all the chefs and what they were doing. And she came to me and she was like, you need to go work for this guy. Like this is, this is his backstory. And so she really pushed me to go up to Noosa and ask for a job. 
And um, it took me three attempts. Like I drove up three days in a row and he kept saying no to me. And on the third day, he's just like, oh, she's keen enough. Just get her in, just shut her up, you know. But, you know, and that actually ended up a little bit of a disaster because in the first week there was a sous chef called Tennille. We used to call her Hitler um, because she was just really scary and really strict but had like really high expectations, which was amazing to work with. And I worked there for four years Um, but she taught me how to make a toffee and the first time I made it after she'd shown me, I actually crystallised it. So I raced to the the dishwashing area to kind of try to hide it so I wouldn't get in trouble except the dishwashing area, there'd been a bit of water spilt and I'd actually, I slipped over with this pot of toffee and spilt it all over my face. So within the first week of working there, you know, I was rushed to hospital and put in a hot shower to melt it all off first and then in a cold one, but, like, my face... You know, I was pretty badly scarred for a couple of years and I was really keen to get back into the kitchen and prove that I was this good worker and they'd made the right decision. Um, but I came back and it was an open pass and, my, you know, half my face was just oozing and it was just a really awkward time for everyone. Um, but we moved on and the things that I learnt there, so David had a really, I think he just had a really solid base of cooking in the fact... Everybody that's listening to this is still, even though you've moved on, they're just imagining you with this pot of toffee this poor young person having spilt toffee on your face. Sorry, you've moved on, but we're all still there. Like, that's awful. That is a terrible workplace accident right there. And it was like, it was a place where we changed the menu every day as well. So it was just before service. Everyone was in the, you know, in the weeds. Um, And then you've got this new apprentice that's just spilt toffee over them. So they're just like, oh, what do you do? Like the, the dishwashing person at the time had to take me to, to hospital because everyone was just, you know, <laughs> even more in the in the weeds. Shoulder against the wheel, as we yeah. say, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So you worked there for four years? Yeah. Um, but it, it gave me, like, a really solid foundation of cooking. Like, that was – everything was done really, like, correctly. You know, we did we did get to change the menu every day and that was actually the first place and the only place that I'd come across where David – said, this is my ethos, this is what, you know, I'm going to give you all this, I'm going to teach you how to make a train or a pate or, you know, break down a fish, and then this is going to be your section, you're going to learn this section, and then you're going to, before you move on, you'll be able to create the menu for this section every day, and then he would come in and make sure everyone, like, menus from every section would bind together and he'd make a few adjustments. But, like, to have that kind of opportunity and teaching creativity as a skill where often we're kind of taught, you know, there's some people that are just really good at, they're really creative people. And to treat that and break it down like any other skill that you learn in the kitchen, I thought that was really clever. And I think there is too big a gap between in the industry being a good chef and then running a kitchen. And if you can give people or treat creativity as one of those skills to give like just a narrow that gap. I think that's amazing. And that's something that I tried to do, you know, when I was in the position. Well, I think as, you know, being an older chef, you, you, you're either somebody that was trained in a particular way, like I was, and you react against it, right? Or you just continue the old way. And I remember, you know, when I trained, it was just put up and shut up. You know, you earned the right to those recipes. And it kind of stripped, when I think back, even though my technical skills were superb, you know, you learn everything through, you know, repetition and rote over and over again until you can do it 
you know, without thinking about it, that it strips every bit of creativity away from you and responsibility, to be honest. And I, I always remember, you know, when I was at the Connaught in London going, I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to be that manager. I'm never going to be that chef that just says, put up and shut up and get on with it. And I remember yeah, when but how sh- beautiful is it that I'm sure your Brunoise is like amazing and <laughs> impeccable. Yeah, but who cares? Like, I think that's you know, also, I- <laughs> we've probably gone from one extreme to the other where people have maybe get a little bit more creativity, they're pushed into those positions like sous chef or head chef where they get to do that, but they might not know how to cut an onion yeah, properly. Yeah, fill it a like, I think sure. there's good yeah. things to both sides. Yeah, of course. And there's a happy medium also. I always remember saying to George, who worked for us for years, George Colombaris, he was about 22 and I said, you know, you can run this kitchen. And we'd given him every bit of responsibility at Phoenix to do exactly what he wants, just feed that enthusiasm. And he goes, I'm too young. And I go, too young to what? But it's just everybody, you know, is at a different level. Some people just have the one-year experience over and over again. They're just in their life. And that's okay. But um, it's interesting. That separation of creativity and technician is a bit like entrepreneur and businessman. They're not always the same thing, are they? No. Two different skill sets sometimes. Well, I feel like I could have made a really easy jump from that to them when I ended up doing. But instead, you know when you learn something and you don't take it for granted, but you're just like, well, that's that's only one way of thinking. So I think from there I really spent, and I don't think it was wasted, but I tried to do every different thing other than what David had taught me and make sure. And I ended up coming back. It was like a full circle of you know, end up cooking the way that I started. But at least I knew it was a decision that felt right to me and I was doing it for the right reasons, not because I didn't know any other way. Yeah. Can I drag you back a little bit to uh, growing up? Because you did, did you grow up in Gympie? Yeah, kind of. Like in between Gympie and Noosa, it was right. like pretty country. Okay. What did that look like? So we were the <laughs> we were the only people on the street that didn't have a farm. But we had, you know, a bit of acreage and... We came from Melbourne and when we moved up, um, like we were pretty, mum was pretty thrifty, like we were really poor and we actually had all these amazing things that seem great now that I reflect back on it. Like we had a garden and we could pick our own produce and stuff like that, but only because we we legitimately couldn't afford it from the shop. Like mum would start from one end and work away until we'd run out of money. So one week we'd have veg and the next week we'd have meat and, you know, one chicken breast could stretch, you know, for four of us for four meals. Like it was amazing what she could do with a bit of pastry. And mum was a great baker, but she didn't believe in salt or butter. So all the other meals were to be desired. Um, And I think that's why my brother and I ended up becoming chefs, just because we thought there had to be better out there. Yeah. It's a common story, actually. You either come from a foodie background where everything was a wonderful or an impoverished background where you had to make it wonderful yourself. <laughs> so what did your mum do? Um, I mean, did, were mum and dad on the scene or just mum? So no, yeah, mum and dad. They're the most opposite people I've ever met, which, is again, was really nice because, you know, you grew up not thinking one way but, you know, getting one extreme to the other. Um, but mum did everything. Like, at the moment she's retired and she's living on a boat that she 10 years ago decided that she was going to become a boat builder. Um, So she built a boat from scratch and now has this perfect boat on the water I just spent last week hanging out on it and it's just just stunning. And Dad Dad was on the streets when he was 14. Um, So, again, one of those people that just, you know, incredibly smart but just became a you know, good at anything he touched because of necessity. Um, so, but again, gone through life and has had 
a, a handful of different jobs, but nothing. They did work at restaurants, but both on the floor um, down in Melbourne. But yeah, no chefy upbringing at all. So what? So did you say your brother's a chef as well, or was that my imagination? Just that? he is um, like he. Paul was, I think that happens with all siblings, like everyone's just really competitive. Yeah. And so Paul didn't have the passion for cooking, but, you know, I, I was doing it and he had to be better than me. Um, and I kept saying to him, like, you know, you're the smart kid, like try and use your brains for something. Even when we were doing, like I was really good at athletics and my brother was the kind of person that was so uncoordinated that he's, you know, hands would just be flopping around, but by sheer determination would win those races because, you know, if Alana can do it, he can do it. But he's just recently, like, I think the whole family knows now anyway, but, you know, he got into that other side of chefing where he became a drug dealer and then he actually self-represented and got himself off on two accounts and now he's completely turned his life around and studying law and you know, using that brain of his, which is amazing. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So um, how did you, obviously, you know, getting to work with David Rayner was a turning point, but then, so why did you find yourself in food? Like, what, what was, the, was there a catalyst? Did you work at that pub in Gympie and go, oh, that's what I want to do, I want to do, I don't know, chicken in a basket or whatever was getting cooked? <laughs> no, I think it was, uh, we had like a road trip down to Melbourne as like a family. And... So a bit more sophisticated version of chicken in a basket. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I had a moment when I was really young at six years old and, we stopped by this authentic pizza place. And again, you know, being six, you're used to Domino's and Pizza Hut pizza. And we get this pizza, which is like thin, not a lot of toppings. And I'm just like, what is this, Dad? Like, and he's just like, can you, you know, exhausted from the road trip, he's just like, can you just eat it and then complain? And so, you know, then, then we ate this ready to complain. And it was just like a little epiphany at six years old of like, this is what it's supposed to be like. What have I been eating before? And even something as simple as a pizza, like I just wanted from that stage in life to, to learn how to do things and do them really well, no matter how simple they were. So, yeah, that, that's why I always had that kind of drive of learning from the best people that were really passionate about, you know, even simple food done really well. And straight after David Rayner's place, I actually went to Italy because, you know, it was that itch. Tell us. Oh, okay. Because that was going to be the next bit. Because <laughs> I didn't end up making pizza. Um, you didn't? No. But Do you regret all, that though? <laughs> it was really interesting. I went there, like I was 21 years old and like I became the sous chef and, you know, you just didn't earn any money over there. It was really hard. And on like I was working six days a week and on my one day off I was making like jam drops and I had this old bicycle and I went to the Duomo in Florence I was living at the time and just saying support an Aussie, buy a jam drop, like, you know, doing anything that I could to make an extra dollar here or there. And Italy, like, is super seasonal. So just, again, 
by survival, we were like getting things, pickling them down when they were really cheap, um, making our own bread at home just because we couldn't afford anything else. And I think by the end of it, we had my partner and I at the time, we had 300 euros between the two of us being, you know, that thrifty and working that hard. And, um, and we got ripped off, as you do, um, by a teacher that we lived with and he took our bond. And so, you know, I still wanted to, to visit the rest of Europe. And so we ended up uh, Frankensteining some bikes together. So in Italy at the time as well, like it wasn't cool to fix things. So we got all these broken bikes and put them together and that's what that was our plan to like ride around the rest of Europe. And uh, again, it wasn't cool to go camping. So my mum, she was turning a certain age where um, I won't mention, but, you know, she wanted to go to Disneyland. She wanted to go to Venice. So I got her to drop off a tent um, and I met her in Venice. And so we had like a little camp stove and had some rice and some pasta and then anything we found on the side of the road we just you know cooked with and that was our means of survival and I lost heaps of weight because I put on heaps of weight (laughs) because you know like they just keep all the good things in Italy as well like you've eaten blue cheese or prosciutto before but eating it there it was just a whole nother level but yeah the first day my partner actually got 13 flat tires and, you know, we had these crappy bikes and everything was Oki strapped on. So every time we had to change a tire, like you'd have to flip, take all the stuff off, you flip it on, you know, upside down. And he's just like, that's it in Australia. Like, you know, this wouldn't happen. Everything's just crappy and we're getting ripped off and we're going back to Australia. And I was just like, no, we're not like, I'm not, I'm losing weight before I go back there. No one can see me like this. Um, And so, yeah, I think we just had too much on our bikes as well. Like they weren't built to carry the amount of things that we had. So we just went to a service station and had a few beers. And um, and I'm just like, oh, I've got a great idea. I'll just, you know, double you around around the rest of Europe. It'll be fine. Um, And so we just threw out all our stuff um, and then put like that, you know, the, the tape that you use like just a bandage, like bandaging tape, but we stuck that around the the actual tire itself just for a bit of extra protection. And like, then just kind of had a moment and looked at it and going, you know, maybe maybe it'll be okay. Like, let's see how, if we can do this on two bikes. And um, sure enough, we didn't get another, didn't get another flat tire. It was all, you know, not cruisy sailing by any means, but yeah, it was happy days. But what a story. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of chefs leave, go overseas just because they think that that's what they should do. And often, you know, I always tell a young chef, well, what, you know, why are you going specifically? What are you going to bring back? What do you want to go and eat? You know, what do you want to learn? You know, no point just like signing up and working in some, you know, restaurant picking lettuces or making bread rolls for 12 months. But often it's just the experience of the travel and the eating rather than the working. Not always. But did you have that experience? Yeah, I think at the time, like, you know, it wasn't such a clear path as well. Like, we didn't have Instagram. There wasn't like a dot to dot, you know, guideline of, you know, who's cool to work with, who do you align with, what kind of food do you want to be cooking, you know, send an email. It was a really, it was a lot of just, you know, a bit of guesswork. And I think that, like, I think in hospitality as well, like a huge amount of your, the job is problem solving. So to have not a clear kind of solution to things and just kind of wandering through life for a little bit and 
figuring out the hard stuff. Like I think that's all. Yeah, the whole industry just used to work on kind of the bullshit idea of turning up, knocking on the door and saying I can work, whether it was for free to prove that you could, you know, or just on the hope that you'd get offered a job. And it always used to work. Not quite the same now, but that's how it used to used to roll. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I read a funny a story that you worked up in um, the Northern Territories and you were burning your rubbish out of the back. Is that a...? Oh, again, I, you know, coming back from Italy, um, I thought I had to grow up really quickly and, you know, I'd been proposed to and then so we thought the natural step uh, was then to get a house and I got six months into, like, having a house in Noosa with a fiancé and I was just, you know, when you just start to suffocate, you're like, <laughs> I'm just like, this is not for me. And he's just like, okay, what do you want to do? So at the time I was doing, I, I had an old combi and so we spent a bit of time just doing that up. Again, my dad's like a spray painter and panel beater and I rode a lot of cars off when I was young um, and he just cracked it one day and said, well, you're going to have to learn to do all this because I'm not doing this for you. Um, so that was a bit of father-daughter time that, again, we got to spend together and do up this car, but I put far too much time into the aesthetics of the van and not so much into the actual mechanics. Mm. And so I'd always wanted to go travelling with my best friend, so at the time she was travelling with her partner around Australia, so we said, let's let's meet in Darwin. Um, she went through the middle of Australia and I, like, you know, did the east coast. And by the time we got there, the, the car had completely broken down. And so we both got... We just... We actually um, went into a job agency and the lady's just like, what's your, what's your address? And we're just like, oh, we're just staying on the side of the road, actually. And she's like, it's not safe. You know, come to my house, stay underneath. Like, we've got a pool and we've got, um, like, just amazing hospitality and generosity. And so then she just found lots of different jobs for us to to go in until we found a job at Paspali Pearls. So, again, it was just one of those times that I get really seasick, but I just lied and said that I didn't. And I was really lucky in the fact that I got stationed on an island um, in Arnhem Land. And so, you know, as part of that, there's no way to get rid of your rubbish. So, you know, all the food scraps I was throwing into the ocean and I'm the most shocking fisherman um, but I was managed. I managed to catch enough fish to, you know, feed thirty guys for lunch every day, um, which was incredible. But also after that, like it was a real, it was a bit of a timing thing because the sharks would come, and then it wasn't the sharks, but it was the crocodiles that would come. That you know, it wasn't on the first or the second, but it was the third day that these crocodiles would literally jump out and like chase you down the jetty. Like they were, it was really scary. Like, There's a new girl on the beach. They they've realised that something's happening. So they've come to have a look. <laughs> yeah, you've got to change your um, your location, your routine every day. Intra- yeah. See, I never knew that. Huh? Crocodiles are watching. Well, they've got nothing else to do, right? I mean, seriously, that's a funny story. But you must be standing on the beach. What have you got a? You just got a line that you've thrown into the water, and you're hoping to catch lunch. Is that the deal? But the fishing up there is just—it was really remarkable. So, and because again, because you're throwing the food scraps out every day, like you know, they know. And so they just they just come every day. But, yeah, you had to be really cautious of how much rubbish that you would because you would, like, it was so confronting to have to actually go out the back and burn all your rubbish. And so it did, like, I think that whilst it was a very off-the-cuff kind of job, like, it did teach me a lot and things that it really cemented in to me at an early age of, you know, be really cautious of 
what you're buying in because, you know, this is, at the end of the day, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah, that's interesting because I was just thinking that's obviously one of the, the moments that cemented your idea of, you know, trying to have this closed loop, you know, in the restaurant going forward. And I think for most people, we just ignore the fact that the rubbish goes somewhere else and they do the same thing to it. They bury it, they burn it, they sort it, they dump it. Yeah, but you don't have to see it. Don't have to right, see it. Yeah. So it's not in your your mind's eye. Um, you were you were written about where six women carving up the Australian food scene, and you're in an article as being one of those women. How do you feel about that? And what are your thoughts around all of that? I'm very conflicted about any kind of articles like that. To be totally honest. And and why is that? Oh, I think it's great that there is that promotion and you can really feel that where they're trying to even the score between like women kind of having it quite hard in a lot of circumstances in hospitality or in like you know many industries but like anything in history like it really goes from one extreme to the other Um, and instead of finding this happy middle ground so whilst it's amazing to be recognized and to be put up there anything that's not just promoting you as a chef like really Getting into that female side of things just makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, yeah. to be totally honest. Oh, well, I thought I'd ask because I know Lauren Eldridge said at one stage, she goes, I just get sick of being a female chef. She goes, I'm a chef. Yeah. Like, so what? Is that how you think as well? Yeah, I think it's, again, you don't want to feel ungrateful because it is really lovely that people are making more of a conscious decision. I think sometimes you have been built into this way of thinking this is what a a restaurant's like and for people to be thinking along a certain way, like I think it makes them, like it's a bit of a wake-up call, so I think it does have its point of, you know, it's a wake-up call or maybe I don't have any women in here, maybe I should look at them as an option instead of going, well, I need a big bloke that's got tattoos that, you know, can really handle it. And I don't think it's just women, like, you know, even being a, I know heaps of my skinny little guy friends as well get, you know, treated exactly the same of like, you're not that picture perfect kind of person. I'm not sure if you'll be able to handle it. Um, but yeah, look, it's a tricky one. I always avoid talking about it. So. Oh, do you? <laughs> so okay. let's move it's on. A, no, when it's normally me, I, I'm, you know, I'm a 53 year old man and I try and avoid it. But I always say, you know, at one stage, you know, in running, you know, Phoenix and the Boathouse and big kitchen events, I think all of the top positions were women. You know, and somebody rang me up and said, and said to me, you know, what do you think about women in the workplace? I go, uh, why? Because, as, you know, I didn't think there was even, well, not that there wasn't, not that I'm ignorant enough to think that it wasn't a problem anymore, but certainly in my businesses that even having, um, I remember I had a sous chef that said, you know, I'm pregnant, I'm going away, we're having a family. And I said, in any capacity that you can come back, I want you. And she used to come back in and do, you know, a double on a Friday, double on a Saturday. I mean, that was like a dream, you know, because I go, like, I'm exploiting her skills. She's happy because, you know, husband was off at the weekend looking after the kids and she's, like, back in the the mix doing her thing. And I used to walk in and go, oh, there she is, you know, she's cracking the whip. And it would bring me an enormous sense of, I don't know, pleasure to see that, you know, like that relationship between employer and her was working. I think it's important doing those articles because it does kind of open the eyes of the next generation as well. Like I can remember in year four at school, like they had a bit of a a job day and all these people came in. And I'm not sure if this kind of shaped anything, but there was a woman that was in there that was a chef. And I'm just like, oh, wow, like 
you know, this is many years ago where all the pictures of chefs were, you know, big, mm. plumpy men. Are you pointing the finger at me? I'm not. When you no say plumpy <laughs> there, I'm sure it was. <laughs> Sorry, go on, carry on. <laughs> but, you know, that was kind of your, your cut out of a chef. Um, so I think, you know, we've made the more articles like this, at least it does kind of diversify, you know, what people growing up, their expectations and what they think that they can do as well. And I think we've seen a bit of an influx of, you know, more women feeling comfortable and taking that as a serious career move. Yeah. And also the importance of all the of businesses, you know, traditional or not, being adaptable. And, well, I mean, you've got to adapt to be in the marketplace, you know. I mean, look, we've lost 30% of our visa workers back overseas. You know, you've got to be creative. Oh, you aren't, you're not functioning, right? So, um a young person in the industry, somebody who's trailblazing, somebody that's doing something different, somebody that's, um, you know, feels very strongly about many things. Where do you think it's heading? <laughs> it's really hard to know at the moment. Like, I think last year really knocked us all. And even this year, like, I think it's going to be a really tough year. Like you said, you know, we've lost our visa workers and every restaurant that I go to, and I'm eating out a lot at the moment, like, every single place needs staff and whether you know it's from those I think it's a collection of things the fact that you know we've lost those visa workers people have had that time off and you know you're not even necessarily losing staff to other restaurants but you know people have had that time and they're just you might be losing them to a different uh, career like perhaps they they think gardening's a nicer career path to go down and I remember uh, reading that article from Prune in New York and, you know, when COVID first hit and for her, like, to be in a position that the only thing that she could really do was, like, that GoFundMe and for her reaction to be like, well, you know, what right do I have to think that my business is more important than the kebab shop down the road and why why am I going to demand people's money and think it's more important than this place and, you know, is it time to bow out? And not that I'm bowing out by any means, but I'm going to take this year and I think it's a really, I've always had that restaurant, you've always felt guilty leaving it. Now I just get to have a bit of a fun year and go do those things that I would normally feel guilty of, you know, go do Tasting Australia or go do a little filming with Annalise Gregory or just have a bit of fun without that guilt and also just not flood the industry, like really support the people that are still trying to do it tough because it's really hard for everyone at the moment. And I think this year, like taking away the job keeper as well, like I just, I think it's time to really, if you've got the option to be supporting the other people and like I really want to be taking this this year as a, a bit of a breather of working on other skills and kind of collecting and making sure the next move that I make is something that I want to be doing for a really long time. It's not just jumping from one thing to the other and doing exactly the same thing, like really making sure that the next move is everything that I conceptually want to do and yeah. it's for the right reasons. I don't think anybody can accuse you from jumping from one thing to another. You've got a, a stellar background and career and you're certainly on the map. Do you, do you have any insights into, you know, I mean, people have tried to, and I hate even using the word pivot, but people have tried to rethink their business bottles, maybe take the restaurants outside of their, the four walls, which would, you know, the restaurants haven't changed really, have they? hundred years. So any thoughts into that? Do you think that there's going to be a new space in which 
restaurants might operate? I think, like, Or maybe not restaurants, maybe it's I've, like eating. I mean, who knows? No, I think, like you said, you know, at the end of the day, it's just if you provide good food and good service and great wine, like, you know, that's, that's what people are going to the restaurants for. Um, but in saying that, I think there'll be a lot of places that unfortunately won't get through this. And I think there'll be a lot of spaces where, you know, you will see people that might have those ideas that haven't been afforded to like get into the market before that they can go into their own thing. Because I think we really saw for a while there, the only people that could afford to have these iconic places or really be successful with the people that, you know, were big business people. And you had to kind of align with that. And there was like, we were losing, like it was becoming less and less kind of independent places. And it's really hard. Like, that's why I went and worked for Josh Nyland, because I really wanted to do something independent and wanted to know how, you know, you actually formulate and what it really takes to do that. And it's so hard. Like, it's much... um, more tempting to for someone to be like, well, I've got the money, you know, play by my rules and you can come do that. And I think, you know, whilst I learnt so much at ARC, I was so happy with that whole experience, like just going into something, taking the opportunity and taking over the space at Wasabi. Again, that only happened because of COVID and, you know, she had a space that had to be filled. She didn't want to do wasabi. I wanted to do my own thing. And so, and we were just talking and it took, you know, we were talking to each other about me doing a pop-up in Brisbane and it just, it took another friend, a mutual friend, joining the dots for us. And we're like, oh, how did we not see that before? But it was brilliant. Um, and I think it just to run an independent restaurant as well, like to see, to be over every single figure, like for it to be really clear for the, you know, delivery to be the back door, like, and to be able to have those decisions that you can make those decisions at the, like at the moment, it doesn't need to go through that big process of getting it ticked by seven different people and it kind of watering down what you really want to do. Like, it was just so refreshing and I would definitely, like, I think that's really nice that everyone, you know, can also do something along that lines and it's about talking it out with landlords or you know spaces that you can pretty hopefully the public are a little bit more open to the idea of you know maybe we haven't put all this money into making a huge fit out like we're just focused on the food and the service and the wine list and like I'm not saying that people are spoiled but you know you do become accustomed to a certain level of um like the layout, like I love going down Jane Street. You know, you've got Hellenica, you've got Same Same, but it's all just so stunning and so much money has been put into that. And as an independent person, like you, it's just, yeah, it's not possible. Well, no, no young hospitality couple, chef, anybody can afford to. I mean, it's going to cost you a million bucks before you even think about anything. But do you think people see that though? Like they go in uh, and they, but you know, people want the good food. They want all those things. They're happy to give you a one star. Yeah review because, you know, the place might not be up to scratch or, you know. Yeah, it sure. Is where, yeah. like, I, I'm not sure if anyone really looks at it as a whole. I always admire restaurants, like, for example, uh, which I was very um, 
not against, but I, I was indifferent about when I was younger, restaurants in Melbourne like Francois, for example, that have not changed one bit. You know, like the chairs, it's that classic French bistro. And then as I got older and, you know, you open restaurants yourself and spend money, lose money, you start thinking, gee, what a dream. No refit every three years, same chairs, same cutlery, same bread baskets, you know, back and a bit of baguette in there and all the rest of it. And going, really, that's how restaurants used to be. Like little, not all, you know, in grand hotels, et cetera, different. But the entry level into a restaurant has changed entirely, I think, in probably the last, you know, five or 10 years, probably 10 years. And I think you're right. People's expectations are to be wowed by walking in and going, whoa, look at those chairs, look at that cutlery. And, of course, we all get caught up in the same thing. And yet when you really enjoy food, I hope you agree, you don't really care what you're sitting on or what the cutlery is. No, but it's just like I think it's, you know, like we say, people are always gravitated towards that that new thing. And it's just like what do you do to keep that constantly, you know, fresh and keep people coming back other than, you know, the staple of good food and good wine? Like... People want more than that. They want entertainment. They want, like, I hate to say it, but, like, you know, they want that Instagram place to be, like, whether it be the sea urchin crumpet or, like, a back wall that's, like, very iconic. Um, And so it's hard, you know, keeping on top of that from a restaurant's point of view of going. And then that's what, again, I applaud Josh so much for because, you know, he was in the thick of it doing all the work himself but also just thinking six months ahead and knowing that that's what people are like and going, well, in six months, you know, if we don't get this award, what's going to bring people back? Then we need to open up Fish Butchery. Then we need to do a cookbook by this year. Like he was always thinking six months ahead, which is really tough when, you know, most of us are just trying to get through the next day or the next week. Sure. Especially yeah, you're creating and doing everything. You know, that's why, like, you mentioned Annalise Gregory and I like the fact, you know, when I follow her on Instagram and, like, she's doing a table for six in a garden, you know, or, you know, a pop-up somewhere. I mean, that's the kind of energy, you know, that you hope for in in this industry. And, I mean, I've come to the realisation, you know, very clearly that the best restaurants are run by, or most often, let's not make, you know, cast aspersions, but most often are run and driven by owner-operators, they're small uh, they're on the stove or front of house and they're connected to it and they're doing it for everything but the money. Yeah, but I think that's that clear vision as well. Like you're not having to, you know, get anything checked by seven different people and everyone have their different point of view. It's like one clean, clear vision and I think that really comes through. Yeah. Well, I think everything that you say makes sense and I think, you know, in what you've said there about whether COVID will make a change and you know, landlords will be more prepared to negotiate and that's opportunity, that creates opportunity and hopefully it'll foster some creativity. Yeah, I hope so. I'm so happy that you said yes and you jumped on. I've learned a lot and like I say, I love your food, so really appreciate you taking a bit of time out. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a chat with Alana Satwell. Loved it. So here's my tips and tricks inspired by the fact that she's all about, you know, fresh, beautiful produce from the farm and having that kind of closed-loop approach to running a restaurant. And it's funny that during lockdown, like everybody, and I've always gardened a little bit, it's more my wife's thing, but then I thought I'm going to get stuck in and I'm really going to grow lots of vegetables and have fun. And I realised it's a lot harder than you think. I mean, you, you could plant a whole patch of carrots and none of them grow. And when you pull out of the ground after 12 weeks and they're tiny little entwined 
you know, fidgety carrots. You're just like, was it worth it? Mm, it's a question to be asked. On the plus side, I did grow some brilliant kale and chard, which is dead easy. Um, I grow garlic, almost enough for a whole year. So, I'm, you know, I'm kind of proud of myself. But the one thing I learned after 30 years of being in this business, actually more, a local chef said to me, have you ever just taken broad beans young straight off the vine and put them on the grill? And I went, are you serious? Because when I've bought them and used them in the past, as always, you pod them because they've got that big, thick skin, and then you blanch them and then you pod them again, and they're delicious. And in season, I eat loads of them, but I've never grilled them whole. And it really was a moment where I've gone, this is what it's all about when you grow something. And I pulled these little broad beans off the vine, turned the barbecue on, oiled them a little bit, salt and pepper, a little bit of something, a little spice, and I put them on the grill, charred them for about two minutes, olive oil and a dash of lemon, and you eat the whole thing, like a snow pea or a sugar snap pea. Oh my goodness. That's a penny drop moment. Give it a try. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.